Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 26 as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. And this is actually Peter's second sermon. All right, we already went through his first. And you'll notice, if you're paying attention, um, the title of our sermons uh, in your program, uh, that those titles are very descriptive uh, and they tend to focus on general content. They're not creative at all. In fact, I oftentimes just pull them right out of the ESV subheadings uh, because I want to use those as sort of a, a way of, of helping you to see uh, larger context and mechanical things. The sermon itself is what we're going to drill down into. But you might notice that, that there's a different emphasis in what we're about to focus on here than what might be suggested in the title. And that's because God has been pressing me in some specific areas and pressing many of you in specific areas. And so we're going to emphasize repentance today. We'll talk a lot about repentance. Um, and it's because y'all need to repent, as do I. And there is never a day in which we don't need to repent. And the need to repent is... It's not just a, a, a duty, something that we're supposed to do. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's good and right and true to do, but it's, it's essential for your life. It's essential for your spiritual health. It's essential for your joy because sin is a disease. And I don't mean it's a disease like it's something that just happens to you and you're not culpable. I mean... It's a disease in that it infects you, it corrupts your nature, it brings ruin into your life. I mean it's a disease in that sin is, is terminal. It leads to death and damnation. And sometimes, right, at certain points in our lives, we begin to feel the weight of sin. We feel its weight, its pressure. We, we recognize just how sticky it is, and we can't extricate ourselves from it. We, we, we struggle with the burden of sin, and it's usually not because we understand that sin is a problem in general. When we feel the weight of sin, when we begin to feel like we're being crushed by sin, it's because there are particular sins in our lives that are wreaking havoc. And so we begin to feel the weight, and what do we do? The most popular common thing that I see people doing, even Christians in churches, right, is uh, we try to cope with our sin. Right? And, and we cope with our sin by, oh, I don't know, by pretending, right? That's what we do. We, we pretend as if everything is fine. We pretend as if those sins aren't wreaking havoc in our lives. We pretend like all is good everything's fine. We hide the symptoms. We're not honest with where we're at. We don't talk to God about it, and we certainly don't talk to each other about it. We cope. We try to cope because it feels awful. But when you are just coping with your sin, you are not finding any deliverance or hope or revival or renewal. When you are coping with your sin, you are avoiding the cure of sin, which is only found in Jesus and experienced through faith and repentance. So today we're going to focus on the cure. We're going to look more closely at our part in appropriating this, experiencing it, receiving this grace in repentance. So in this sermon of Peter's, in these verses, verses 11 through 26, here's the one principle I want us to hold on to. This kind of holds everything together. We will not accept God's 
grace until we acknowledge our guilt. We won't. You won't. We will not accept God's grace. We will not experience the transformative nature of God's grace until we first acknowledge our guilt. That's what I want us to hold on to. And we're going to break this into, into two basic parts, right? It's, uh, we're going to look in verses so 11 through 15. We're going to talk about acknowledging our guilt, what that means and looks like, and then in verses 16 through 25, accepting God's grace, all right? So first, acknowledging our guilt, we see this in verses 11 through 15 in Acts chapter 3. When he clung to Peter and John, this is the man who was healed by Peter miraculously, right? When he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we need you to teach us. We need you to illuminate, to open our eyes and to open our hearts, to receive your word with gladness, we need to be changed, and we pray, God, that as we look at your word and continue to worship you, that your spirit would be at work in each of us individually and all of us collectively, that we would become a people of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, acknowledging our guilt. By the way, you'll note right away here in uh, verses 11 and 12, Peter doesn't miss the opportunity. Peter loves an opportunity. You know Peter, he likes to talk. He, but, but now he's been filled with the Spirit. He's empowered. He's stepping forward as a leader. He's constantly being put forward by God and the people to be a leader, if not the leader in the church. And here he has another opportunity, another chance to preach Jesus, to evangelize. He can't miss it. He just... This man was healed, a man that was born lame from birth, right? D disabled, could not walk, miraculously, immediately healed. Sign, wonder, dramatic, right? This man is healed. He's leaping, he's singing, he's praising God. And so now, just following that, this guy is, he is clinging on to Peter and John. Doesn't want to leave. Like, this guy's life is changed. The people, they're blown away. They're astounded. They're, they know this guy. They know this guy, this poor guy, this disabled guy who begs for money outside of the beautiful gate. They know him, and now he's walking around. They are excited. They're in awe. And so Peter sees that they're all staring, and he takes the opportunity to begin to preach. He's like, oh, you're all paying attention? Captive audience, let's go. And the first thing that he wants to do is to establish in the minds of everybody marveling at this miracle that you are guilty. You would think it'd be a time for celebration. Look, look this guy just got healed. Woohoo! Nope. You are guilty. In fact, he seems to say, why are you marveling at this? 
Why are you so blown away and captivated by this miracle? First of all, I didn't do it. It was God, right? It was the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So it's not us, just to clear the air here. But why are you so impressed at this miracle when you have denied and rejected the greater miracle? You're impressed with this healing of legs, but you rejected Jesus. You like this demonstration of his power, but you didn't like him. You denied him. You rejected him. You killed him. I mean, you see him saying this, right? In verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one, in verse 14, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. He's saying, he's saying, you are guilty. You are guilty of rejecting God's son. You are guilty of his murder. You are. That sound fair? How are these people guilty of Christ's murder? Did they do it? Oh no, are we wading into corporate guilt? Everybody freak out. The, listen, he's using the plural you. He's saying, you all are guilty of the death of Jesus. That's what he says. They didn't put the nails in his hands or feet. They didn't pierce his side. They didn't hang him on the cross. So how are they guilty? Well, in one sense, in pointing out their guilt as sinners and their connection to Christ's sacrifice, yes, he's pointing to a sense of corporate guilt. You as a people worked together and had the opportunity to release Jesus when he was arrested and being tried in some kangaroo court and you didn't do it. If you don't know the story, Jesus is framed and arrested and he's taken by Jewish leadership and given to Roman leadership and Pilate's like, I don't know, this guy doesn't really look like he did anything wrong. Why, we could probably just let him go. I'll, I'll leave it up to the people. I'll leave it up to the Jewish people who are here watching, right? And so he presents Barabbas, a bad guy, a really bad guy, a murderer. And Jesus, who is known by all to be innocent and righteous. And he says, okay, Pilate's like, all right, guys, we can let one go. Who do you want? Who do you got? And they said, no, let Jesus swing. We'll take Barabbas. Release to us the murderer and kill the son of God. So that's what happened. And, and Peter is saying, you did that. You did that. And it's not just that you did it in a corporate sense. That happened. But you did this in a personal sense as well. You are personally responsible. Now, how are they personally responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, they're personally responsible for the death of Jesus because Christ died for sinners. He died to redeem the wicked, the undeserving. He died. He took our place. He took our punishment. He took upon himself our shame. So this is very much you are guilty of the death of Jesus. And this was, this was the opportunity for them to now begin to wrestle with who they really are. Sinners. We're going to come back to this, but, but Peter is making a good point, a true point 
a dramatic point. He's showing them the sinfulness of sin by showing them Christ's sacrifice and murder. Now, in saying you are guilty, the implication is that, well, we are all guilty. We're all sinners. And Scripture teaches this, right? You can't read much Scripture without running into the reality, the wall of our guilt. Everyone is guilty. Most of us are familiar with passages like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But a lot of us read that, and, we, and that's about as, as deep as we go regarding our sin and failure. All have sinned, okay, whatever that means, sure. We've fallen short of God's glory. Oh, like a near miss, almost got there, right? Like, I just, just by this much missed it. I could have, you know, I had great intentions, great form, got really close, you know, didn't hit the bullseye, so I fell short, but still, not too bad, especially if you compare me to other bozos around here, I look pretty good. We misunderstand the meaning of that verse. The idea is not like, oh, you just fell short. The idea is, no, you were created for God's glory and instead you glorified yourself. You were created for God's glory and instead you glorified the creation instead of the creator. You made idols and bowed down and worshiped them. Instead of following God's ways, you went your own ways. You are sinful is the point. Or in 1 John 1, 8, if anyone says that he is without sin or that he does not sin, he lies and the truth is not in him. Or listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That person does not exist. If you think that you are a righteous person who does not sin, you do not exist. You are an imagination and of course, you know, Paul makes this argument in Romans and he makes it very thorough, very, very deep. It's a very profound argument about the sinfulness of humanity because his point is it doesn't matter whether you're some pagan that worships multiple gods or a religious Jew in the first century. You're all sinners. That's Paul's point. He says it like this in Romans 3, verse 10, quoting from the Psalms, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the human condition. That's where we're at. That's where we are all at. We are guilty as sinners. But what Peter is doing here is he's not content just to get everybody on the same page to acknowledge that, well, yeah, we're all sinful. We're all corrupt. He shows the sinfulness of sin by pointing to the death of Jesus Christ. That's why he's focused there. That's why he brings people back. Because the death of Jesus Christ was a horror. I mean, it was, it, it is generally understood to be the worst form of execution ever imagined by mankind. And he was innocent. And he was righteous. And he was God in the flesh who came to save and to deliver. And there he is, being betrayed and tortured and murdered. You see, the death of Christ shows us that our sin is worse than we think it is. 
so much more worse. Because in the death of Christ, what do we see? We see the servant of God and man, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, being killed. And we are responsible. And you see what it says here, right? The servant of God. You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, the one who gives life to everyone, who sustains the world by the word of his power, the one who is holy and righteous, the one who came to serve both God and sinners like us. We killed him. We're guilty for that. That's how bad our sin is. It's not just that we have hurt some people in our lives or derailed part of our life. It's not just that we have offended God in an abstract way. We have offended God by hating him in every act of sin. And we wound up murdering Jesus by our sins. Back in the early 90s, I, I was converted in 1990, and... Uh, and so the first thing I did was I threw out all my heavy metal albums because those are satanic apparently or some nonsense, I believe. So I, I threw out all my heavy metal. Well, there are a lot of tapes, so it wasn't that big of a loss. But anyways, threw out all my heavy metal albums and I bought as many Christian t-shirts as I could possibly find. Christian t-shirts replaced my heavy metal uh, album collection. And I'll, I'll be honest, they weren't as good as the heavy metal collection. Most of them were pretty bad t-shirts. Uh, but one was great. I loved one and it got biggest response. Every time I wore it, strangers would be like, what's up with your shirt? Because on the front, it simply said, I am guilty of murder. And on the back, on the back, it said, blame me for the death of Jesus Christ because it was for my sins that he was tortured and crucified and killed. <laughs> you see, I understood I understood that much at that time, right? I understood like, no, no, Christ died for me. And it wasn't just that, like, oh, no, he's going to step into the situation. He was stepping into my sins, stepping into my punishment. I killed him with my crimes. I'm guilty. It's not just that something happened to Jesus and now we're saved by it. We did it. We killed him. All this to say that sin is so much worse than we think. And if sin is worse than we think, then we are worse than we think. Most of us, far worse than we think and far worse off than we think, apart from God, apart from Christ. And it means that we are in more need than we can possibly imagine. And yet, as Jesus extends grace to us, we still are slow or resistant to acknowledge our guilt. Why? Why are we so slow to acknowledge our guilt? I'm sure there's a couple of you like, I never, I always acknowledge. Okay, now you got to add lion to your list. <laughs> Acknowledging our sins is something, I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. There are times, there are periods in your life where you're like, you know what? In this situation, I'm not going to deal with my sin. I'm just going to let it ride. Why do we do that? Why do, why do we not want to talk about it? Why do we not confess it to God and to others? I think there's two reasons why we don't in general. One reason is because it's stinking painful. It hurts to confess our sins, to own our guilt, to articulate what we've done. It hurts. And it should. It's supposed to. Our sins are evil. So 
It's painful. It's embarrassing. It's awkward. We, that's why. None of us like pain, and so we tend to avoid it. And then if we continue on with this nonsense, coping with our sins that we do and try to hide it, it's not the pain that slows us to acknowledge our guilt. It's that we find confession like that pointless. See, yeah, it's painful. That's why I don't do it for a time. But what I find in my life, in my heart, and the hearts of many of you is that when you continue in sin without repentance, the idea just seems like it won't work. What's the point? I'm just going to do it again. What's the point? Nothing's going to change. My heart's not going to change. God's not going to do something miraculous in my life so that I become a different person. So what's the point? That's how we begin to think about it. Of course, this is, this is, a, this is all a lie. Without acknowledging our guilt, there is no hope for salvation, nor is there hope for our ongoing deliverance and development and sanctification and renewal and revival. If we want God's grace to abound in our lives, we have to acknowledge our sin. So acknowledging our guilt, acknowledging our sin, that is part of this process. Without that, we cannot accept God's grace. So what do we mean by accepting God's grace? Here we see it in verses 16 and following. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So right away, Peter's like, listen, let's go back to this guy that you're all like marveling over, right? What you see in his life, this miracle that you saw with your own eyes, this is a picture of the redemption that we have in Jesus, it's a picture of salvation. Yes, this was physical healing, right? His legs were made whole. He was now able to do what he was made to do. And that wasn't something that he deserved. It wasn't anything that he earned. He couldn't pay for it. It was unilateral grace given to him that was received by faith, right? He believed and God responded. And spiritual healing is the same. It's ultimately what all of these miracles point to. God heals people because he is compassionate and tender and caring and loving and kind and generous. Yes. But all of those physical miracles actually pale in comparison to the spiritual miracle of changing hearts and reconciling enemies of God to him and making them friends. So, accepting God's grace. Accepting God's grace is something that should, that, that should be familiar to us because it runs throughout all of Scripture. There has been a promise of God's grace from the very beginning, from the moment that sin entered into the created order, from the moment that Adam disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The moment he did that, by the way, the moment we did that, the moment that happened, God began to promise grace. There will be a redeemer. There will be a savior. There will be one who crushes evil, defeats the devil, and restores humanity, who brings humanity back to God. This savior is coming. And here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to look at Isaiah 53. Because in all of the promises in scripture, 
Isaiah 53 is one that I think sometimes we're so familiar with, we, we lose sight of it. Now, while you're turning there, let me just read what Peter says. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but if God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, like Isaiah, if God, uh, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So here is the prophecy, Isaiah 53, one of the prophecies. This might be the most beautiful. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Which means, by the way, that Jesus doesn't just bear the penalty of our sins. He bears the weight of them. He bears the feeling of them. He took it all upon himself. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This sounds like Peter. It's because Peter is so heavily influenced by the scripture. What he is saying to this crowd of people is really reflecting so much of these prophecies. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the enemy and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's poetic and beautiful and detailed and doctrinal and true. That is the gospel in Isaiah 53. This is the prophecy, the promise of grace. God has always said, though you deserve death and damnation, I'm sending one that will take death and damnation upon himself so that you can instead have life and eternity with me. God promised grace, and he offers grace today. 
He offers it. He offers it to everyone. Offers it to everyone who is willing to acknowledge their guilt, who is willing to confess their sin and look to Jesus. Grace is offered to all. And it's offered, right? It's offered in different ways, right? Yes, we get the promise of grace, God's undeserved favor. But what we see here in verse 19 through 21 is that we see forgiveness and revival and hope. You see verse 19? Repent, therefore, now he gets to it, shows them their guilt, you're guilty, you did this, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Three things that are, that are said there. The one who repents, finds, experiences the forgiveness of sins. And now this is what we have at, on the front end immediately. The moment a person believes in Jesus, they are reconciled to God. Their guilt is taken away, right? They're no longer condemned. They're reconciled. Their sins are forgiven. This is humanity's greatest need for our sin to be forgiven by God. And once forgiven, you can't become unforgiven in the eyes of God. This is a certainty but God's grace that accompanies repentance isn't just for your conversion and your relationship with God judicially, how you stand before him. It also relates to the ongoing communion that we have with God, our experience of God in his grace. And one of the things that repentance does is it leads to refreshment or revival or renewal. You see again, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When we're cold or apathetic, when we're bored with the Bible, when we're tired of this life, when we're confused or doubting, we need refreshment, revival. We need God's renewing work. It comes as a gift but it's connected to repentance and hope. Here, hope is the return of Jesus. He says, listen, the return of Christ is a great hope for everyone who has repented because the return of Christ is the great day of the Lord. That's a day of damnation. It's a day of fear. This is a day that is, is a, a, a curse on the world. But for those that repent, it is a day of joy because it's finally seeing our Savior who comes to receive us and finally remove even the presence of sin in this life. You see, repentance here is key. Like, repentance is absolutely key to the, to the Christian life in terms of entering into it and maintaining it. Faith and repentance, they are two different things, but they're always together. They work in tandem. See, faith is, faith is dependency. It's trust. It's, it's relying on on the kindness and the grace of God in Jesus for our salvation. In other words, faith, faith, faith acknowledges, right, that there is nowhere else I can go for my sins to be removed and to be made right with God. My only hope is to trust in Jesus and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection. When we believe in Christ, we depend upon him, we trust him. That's faith, repentance. Repentance is like the gnarly side of faith. Like re repentance is, repentance, okay, well, let's just say this. Most scholars agree that, that repentance is essentially, in its most simple form, a changing of your mind or a changing of your heart. 
Now, this isn't a flippant change, like we change our mind all the time, like, oh, chocolate's my favorite. Nope, not anymore. Now it's strawberry. It's not like that. It's an actual change of your mind or an actual change of your heart. It's a radical reorientation is what it is. It's, it's a change of course. Now, we need to make a distinction between repentance and the works of repentance. There's a difference. Repentance is the change of mind, the change of heart, but the works of repentance, right? These are the particular ways in which we walk or live out our repentance as it relates to our specific sins and failures. So sin is a change of, of, of mind, a, a change of heart. We'll go ahead and quote the, the Baptist catechism. Uh, question 92 says, what is repentance unto life? Here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, that's us, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is not practice makes perfect. Repentance is not you finally doing all the things that you're supposed to do. Repentance is not you always getting it right. Repentance is a change of, of heart and mind. It is a reorientation. It is a purpose to endeavor to walk after the ways of God for the glory of God with the helpful grace that he supplies. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from sin. It's turning away from the idols and trusting in the God that can actually save. Repentance is letting go of the idols that we hold on to that promised us life but only give death. It's letting go of it and saying, no, I'm letting go of my sins that promised me satisfaction and instead I'm turning to Jesus and I'm holding on to him for life. That's repentance. It's how we accept God's grace. So the offer here is what? Your sins blotted out. Do you need that? I need it. I've got a lot of sins. A lot. And so do you. And we have it in Jesus. We have our sins blotted out in Christ the moment we believe. All of them, past, present, the ones that plague us today. Future. What about refreshing, revival, renewal? Do you need that? I do. If we want it, we can have it. It's not hopeless. It's not pointless to confess our sins and to repent because what do we have? This promise of renewal, refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord, nearness to God, is most often experienced in this act of repentance because to repent is to draw near to him, not back from him. Or hope? Do you need hope? Hope for the future? Hope for what is to come? If we do, then we will repent. Now, there's a warning here. Like Peter is, Peter is opening his hand and offering to these undeserving sinners grace. Here it is. Just all you got to do is accept it. Just believe in Christ Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. That's how you receive it. And yet there is a warning here in verses 22 through 24. 
Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. He's talking about Jesus coming, right? You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. The, the, the point here is that Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 18, 18, to pinpoint it, is saying, like, listen, uh, as Moses was the first prophet and considered the greatest, right? He saw God face to face, spoke to God face to face, burning bush, whole thing. Greatest prophet. He says there's another prophet coming. And that's the one to whom everyone will answer. You will listen to him and live or you will deny him and be damned. He makes it very simple. You listen and live, then you get better than you deserve, so much better. But if you deny him and you're judged, then you get exactly what you deserve. See, repentance, we think of repentance as this weighty responsibility or duty that's a drag. We think of it as hard, difficult, arduous. And yes, the ongoing works of repentance can at times be arduous. Killing sin takes time. And sin remains with us. Its presence is here. It can't reign over us anymore unless we let it, but it's still here. We're tempted. We fail. But we can repent of our sins, turn away from it, let go of it, look to Jesus. And when we do that, we find the grace and the strength that we need so that the works of repentance are not overwhelmingly arduous. Repentance is a gift. Acknowledging our guilt is essential. And we're never going to accept God's grace. We're not going to experience God's grace unless we acknowledge our guilt. So let's just make sure of something here. That as we're addressing this issue of each of our need to repent, that we do not neglect our privilege. Y'all are privileged. Just like the audience here listening to Peter. Look at verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you see how privileged they were? They had the scripture. They had the prophets. They had the covenants. They had the promises. They had it all. It was laid out before them. They had Isaiah. It was read to them all the time. What privilege to be exposed to the revelation of God, the promises of God, the grace of God, so that they should know when Jesus shows up, he is there to what? To bless them, not destroy them. It's what it says. He sent to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness, but instead you killed him. But even now, Peter is saying it's not too late. You can receive him now. He can bless you now if you will acknowledge your guilt and look to him which is what every single person here needs to do in our lives. <laughs> because whether you are Christian or not, we need to confess and repent and look to Jesus every day. <laughs> we're, we're not the nation of Israel, but we are very privileged. 
Bibles on top of Bibles, translations, Bible apps, Bible study software, churches all over the place, worshiping in spirit and in truth, decades of teaching from 2,000 years of church uh, preachers and teachers. We're privileged, and yet we're playing games when it comes to acknowledging our guilt, confessing our sins and repentance. All this to say, all this to say, your sin is great, and many of you know this. Many of you feel the weight of it. Your sin is great, that means your need is great, but your Savior is greater, and that's what I'm afraid we sometimes forget. Your Savior is greater than your sin. He has carried the weight, the sorrow of your sin and guilt on the cross so that you don't have to. You can turn away and turn towards him. But to see his greatness, you're gonna have to see your guilt. You gotta face it. And let me just say this, I'll close with this. In 1993, I started reading Charles Spurgeon. He's a London Baptist uh, preacher, 1800s. Uh, I read his morning and evening, a devotional. It's really good. And I remember and I, this, this one devotional really stood out to me. It was, a, it was 1993, the first time I'd ever heard this idea, but clearly it's in scripture. I, I can't find the quote now, but it's, it's, it's stuck in my head. So this is an approximate quote. Spurgeon said, do not allow the weight of your sin to keep you anchored where you are. Your sin should act as a catapult that throws you to Jesus. Your sin should be the reason you run toward Christ, not away. We think like, oh, my sin is so bad and, it's, and I, I, I don't know how I'm going to get out of it and it's caused so much damage. There's no hope. Nothing can happen. It's, not, it's simply not the truth. First of all, Jesus is always waiting and willing and happy to receive sinners who come to him, acknowledging their guilt, confessing their need. He is the ever-present, always generous Savior. He is ready to receive you, to bless you, to revive you, to refresh you. Your sin, when you see it, when you face it, when you acknowledge it, that should be all the fuel you need to get all the grace you need from the Savior that you need. So let your, let your guilt move you, motivate you to find Jesus again today. We all have repenting to do today, every person here. We all have repenting to do. I've been praying that, that God would show us our specific sins for which we need to repent and confess so that we can find renewing grace in those areas and rediscover the joy of salvation. So that's what we miss. We think repentance is a dark, morose, hard thing that we do where you feel bad about yourself and beat yourself up for all of your mistakes and failures. When really, repentance is acknowledging, seeing, hating, loathing the corruption that we find in our lives. But repentance doesn't end there. It's a turning away and it's a turning towards the one who gives us salvation and what comes with salvation, but the joy of salvation. So let's look to him together for all that we need. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be at work in each of us individually and all of us collectively, that we would be a people of repentance. 
Lord, we're not going to be perfect people, but we want to be godly and faithful. And part of that, Lord, we know now is to be constantly repenting our sin, of our sins. They're godly people, Lord, are still sinners, but they walk in repentance. We want to be that. We want the joy of salvation restored. We want zeal to grow in our hearts. Lord, we do want to live for your glory. So we pray that you'd give us the grace to be a people who repent. In Jesus' name, amen.